Good morning, Mission Church, and welcome to the Miller Home. We want to just invite you to worship the Lord with us today as we gather as a community of Christ wherever we're at. And it seems like there are people that are listening not only in California, but there are people that are worshiping with us uh, from different states all around the world. And so we just want to welcome you into our living room today, invite you to worship with us. And thank you so much, everybody, for the worship that we just experienced together and just introducing us into the presence of the Lord this morning. I'm going to be asking a question, a challenging question. It's a message that I I began to work on a few weeks ago, really several weeks ago, and we were moving into this pandemic, into this coronavirus situation, and I just put it on the shelf. I didn't think it was the right timing, but then the Lord has kind of moved my heart once again, and I brought it off the shelf, and I'm I'm working on it, and I, I want to be, you know, of course, share with you what it is the Lord has laid on my heart, and it's really... Uh, an idea or a question that comes from a song that was released in 2004. Now, I'm not sure how many country western singer fans that we have out there. Uh, There's a few, uh, maybe not many in our church, but uh, this was a song that was released by Tim McGraw. And he's talking with somebody that's just received some bad news about their health. And he's kind of responding, you know, to them and asking the question, what would you do and all that. But anyways, the song begins like this. Listen to these lyrics. The song begins like this. I was in my early 40s with a lot of life before me. And a moment came that stopped me on a dime. And then he talks about going to the doctor. This person that Tim is singing about goes to the doctor, looks at x-rays and gets a message from the doctor that he does not have much life left to live. And he said to him, Tim asked the question, man, what did you do when you got news like that? What did you do? He said, and here's the lyric of the song, he said, I went skydiving. I went Rocky Mountain climbing. I went 2.7 seconds on a bull named Fu Manchu. And I loved deeper and I spoke sweeter and I gave forgiveness I'd been denying. And he said, someday I hope you get the chance to live like you were dying. It's a great song. It's very emotional and, and, and moving, but it, it just kind of brings the question that I want to present to you, which is the title of my message today, if today were the last day of your life. What if today were the last day of your life? Steve Jobs was quoted as saying, if today were the last day of your life, would you want to do what you're about to do today? <laughs> and, you know, this is more than just a, a silly question I mean, of course, if we, we were really facing this situation that this was our last day, we'd do things differently. And, of course, we have mortgages to pay and rent to pay and bills to pay and people that are counting on us. And, and so we'd have to process all of that. But this is, this is more than just a fun question. It's not just a gotcha question or a question to, you know, to get your attention. It's, it's meant to be thought-provoking. It's meant to challenge us to really think about our life, especially our spiritual life, and begin to realign our priorities in such a way that says that Jesus Christ really is the priority of our life. And so with this question in mind, I want to go to Jeremiah chapter 36, looking at verses 11 and 12, and look at an obscure character in Scripture that has more relevance than most people really No. In fact, we go to Jeremiah chapter 36, if you have God's word there. Let's go there. Jeremiah chapter 36, beginning at verse 11 through verse 12. And let me give you a little bit of the context. The scenario is Jeremiah has received word from the Lord. And he's having this word recorded as he's being instructed by the Spirit of the Lord and to read the word publicly. Uh, And then the scroll is then carried by Baruch, recorded by Baruch, a guy named Baruch, and and then carried to 
uh, a room where there's a secretary that's keeping kind of these things there in the palace. Um, and that man, his name is Elishama. And in fact, that's the character that I want to mention, the obscure character that I want to highlight today. So listen to these words as we read about the recording, the reading, and the record keeping of the word of the Lord that came to the prophet Jeremiah. Verse 11. When Micaiah, son of Jemariah, or Jemariah, the son of Saphan, heard all the words of the Lord from the scroll, he went down to the secretary's room in the royal palace where all the officials were sitting. And Elishama, the secretary, and all the other officials, paraphrasing there at the end, and all the officials as they were listening as the word was being recorded, uh, we read then that there was some fear and some trepidation. Now, I think the context is important. This was during the divided kingdom in the fourth year of the reign of Jehoiakim. And Jeremiah, the servant prophet of the Lord, has the word of the Lord come to him. And of course, again, Brooke recording that word, now carrying it to uh, this gentleman by the name of Elishama. Now, you know, as far as the history, I mean, it just unfolds as we read, and we can we can read that another time. But um, the word is, is read publicly, and uh, again, that kind of impacts some people, some of the leaders, some of the decision makers, in which they begin to fear because... The word that had come to Jeremiah had a lot to do with the judgment of the Lord. Well, eventually it's recorded. We look at verse 20 and it mentions that they put the scroll in the room of Elishama, who again is the, the obscure character that I want to focus on for just a moment. And then later on, the king, King Jehoiakim, he has the word that Jeremiah had recorded that God had given him. Uh, read publicly. And so that's what happens. In fact, it, it alludes to the, the fact they read three or four columns and then they cut part of the scroll off and they burn it in the incensor that's let there. And incensor is kind of like a large brass bowl that a fire is burning in for light or for incense or what have you. And so uh, those servants of the king cut the scroll as it's been read and then put in the censer to be burned. And then they read three or four more columns and they cut that piece off and put it in the censer. And so they go through the whole scroll like that and they burn it which kind of gives us an idea of Jehoiakim's attitude towards the word of God, which is concerning because it shows us that that he has no respect for the word of God. It shows us Jehoiakim is not afraid or has no fear about burning the word of God. And so there's some concern there. And I'm wondering, just kind of as a, as a side thought, I'm wondering if there's any difference between his behavior towards the word in which he burns it and those of us that just never read the word of God. And we just allow the word of God to gather dust. And, and, and I'm wondering if there's a similar you know, level of, of respect or disrespect there. I, I mean, it's just something to think about. But, but that happens. But we come back to the character that we're focusing on, of course, which is Elishama. And um, as we look at him and we, we try to figure out who he is, I need to say this, that the thing that makes Elishama interesting is not actually because he's interesting. Did that make sense? The thing that makes Elishama interesting is not the fact that he's, he's interesting. In fact, uh, he's the record keeper. I mean, how interesting is that? Uh, he's keeping these scrolls in this room. If, if it was a room that was you know, built today above the room, there would be a placard, say, record keeping. So how exciting would it be to be the record keeper? I mean, it's like being you know, the officer assigned to the evidence locker, right, in a police station. I mean, the evidence is really important. I mean, the evidence allows the courts to do their job and convict criminals. And so the evidence is really, really important. But be the, 
the officer or the assigned record keeper for the evidence room or cage or whatever it is. It doesn't sound very exciting, but kind of boring. I mean, that's who Elishama was. So it's not that he's interesting, but it, it has a lot to do. The reason why I want to focus on him, because it has a lot to do with the extra biblical evidence that we have for him. And in turn, the historical reliability the scripture you know, gives us. And in fact, um, in one source, we read and we discover this evidence that surfaces in, in 1986. That's right, as recent as 1986, a clay vessel was discovered that had a seal that had not been broken. And of course, as it was broken and they began to read, they, they, they re- realized that this secular source is referring to a guy by the name of Elishama, who is a servant of the king, and is the record keeper, the secretary, and he is the one that is described at the exact time, in the exact setting, in the exact situation, which gives evidence to the reality that the word of God is true, even down to its most intimate detail. And man, that is groundbreaking. It is groundbreaking evidence that the life and the role of Elisha was real. That, that he was a person and he, he really was the record keeper in the record room and the secretary for the king. And, and that's inspirational because it really sets the table for us to ask a different question, but similar to the question that we started with today, and I think one that we can address, and that is, here's the question. If today were the last day of your life, what would your life be evidence of? Think of that. If today were the last day of your life, what what evidence would you leave behind? What would there be evidence of that you that you are a child of God? What what evidence would there be that you you serve the risen Savior Jesus Christ? And and would there be enough evidence? You've heard this before. Would there be enough evidence to convict you of being a Christian? I mean, so so you know, heaven forbid, if the Lord were to call us home and our time would end, I mean, would there be? Would there be evidence enough to say that this was a person that was radically in love with Jesus Christ? You know, you, you can make a difference like that. We, we can have an impact. And maybe your response as we ask this question and we think about it, maybe your response is that, you know, your life is inconsequential or that you think that you have no way to make an impact or your life is small. Well, I have a quote for you that I came across. It's not mine. It's somebody else. Here's what they said. They said, if you, if, if you think that you're too small to make a difference, you've never been in bed with a mosquito. <laughs> uh, because you can. You can make a difference. Amen, people? You can. You can make a difference by the power of the Lord working through you as his vessel. I, I believe that. I love this traditional story, you've heard the story before, but man, it's so impactful in, in, in regards to, you know, no matter who you are, no matter what you think your life is, you can you can make a difference. It's a story of two men that were walking on a beach, a Mexi- Mexican beach, and they were walking down the beach talking and enjoying each other's company. And they see in the distance there's a man there that they later realize is a, a local man. And he's picking something up. He's bidding over and picking something up and throwing it into the ocean. And as they watch him, he does this over and over again. And they approach him and they ask him what he's doing. And they notice, of course, there's thousands of starfish that have been washed up on the beach by the incoming tide. And the man said, well, I'm trying to get these starfish back in the deeper water because if if I don't, they're going to die. And, and and one of the men said, well, how come you think you can make a difference? There's thousands and thousands of starfish here. How are you going to really make a difference? And, and the man, the local man, didn't say anything. He just bent over and he picked up another starfish 
and he threw it back in the water and he smiled and he looked at them and said, I made a difference to that one. <laughs> yeah, you can make a difference. You, you can. You say, well, how can I make the kind of difference that if something, again, heaven forbid, were to happen and this was the end of my life, that people would say, you know, oh, that Sherry or that John or Paul or whatever your name is, man, they really made a difference. Well, we, we can make a difference. And I think there's some examples of this or or uh, some lessons that we can learn from the early church uh, in the book of Acts. In fact, go back in your mind's eye to that that early church when people and the disciples begin to gather, you know, after Pentecost. And that's coming, by the way, Pentecost Sunday. But but as they begin to be church, as they begin to live this life they called the way before it was called Christianity, uh, they gave us some examples of how to do that. And, and the first thing is they walked closely with God. And so how do you make an impact spiritually? Here's the example the early church gave us. Walk closely with God. And what the early church did is remember the basics. They begin to worship together and they begin to break bread together. They begin to serve together. In fact, those that had more than others, they sold their their belongings and they gave to those that were in need. They were part of the way there. And, and they just began to do ministry and to do church. And, and I think it's important to note that this was more than just a an idea. It was more than just a weekend concept. But man, they were committing themselves 100% to being the community of Christ. And part of being the community of the Christ, they, they became masters at discerning God's will through the Spirit. Did you hear that? They became masters at discerning God's will through the Spirit. And that can be risky. It can because, you know, we understand what we like and the rhythm that we live and, and the things that we want to do and we intend to do. And we're comfortable with that because it's our idea and our plan. But when you become a master at discerning the will of God, all of a sudden life changes because now you're saying, I want to do the will of the Lord. And that can be risky because sometimes the Holy Spirit might ask you to sacrifice or to give something up. Or the Holy Spirit might ask you to walk a path that's out of your comfort zone. And, and, and if you're going to be as these early Christians were in this early church, you're going to say to the Lord, okay, here I am. And that means they lived as if their life was a blank check. As if their life was this, this open thing that God could use for his glory and for the kingdom. And they, they came to him as if to say, you know, my life is a blank check, Lord. Just write it out any way that you want. And so they were masters at discerning God's will through the Spirit. Um, they were intimately involved in the Word of God. Remember, they gathered and broke bread and read the Word of God so that they could, you know, listen to God's voice through the Word. Um, and, and, and that's part of the, the supplication process as we pray and we, we patiently sit and wait before the Lord and we thank Him for the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross in His broken body and His shed blood. But we're also intimately involved in knowing what God's word has to say and how it directs us. In fact, our mission here at Mission Church in San Diego, California, is seek, serve, and reach. And the seek part of our mission is that we are seeking God first and that we are studying the word. It's our discipleship piece of our mission. And so as we seek God, we do that in Bible study. And I, I want to brag on some of our, our Zoom Bible study groups and some of our mission communities People are still gathering together like we're doing right now virtually and they're studying and learning the word of God and that's part of the process. They were intimately involved in knowing God's word in that early church. And in fact, the impact that that early church had, those first disciples, 
is so great that we are still feeling the shock waves of those early believers today. Why? Because the church still exists. I mean, God is still moving and working, and, and sometimes the church is really tested and tried in dark times, like times when there are pandemics or when there's famine or when there's brokenness or heartache or whatever it is that we go through, that the church seems to be you know, rising in those times as it is now. And so they walked closely with God. That's how they made a difference that is still impacting the world today. The second thing is they walked with others. Think about what that means. They they walked with others. Remember, they they sold, you know, those that had extra sold and gave to those that were in need. And so they were intimately involved in addressing social injustices in this world in which we live, just as the church should be involved in those social injustices. In fact, we go to the life of Jesus himself and, and Jesus began to sacrifice. Listen to this. He began to sacrifice before he ever went to the cross. In Matthew, we look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 43. Jesus says, he says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. It's easy to love your family and those that are easy to get along with, that neighbor that you like across the street. It is a challenge to pray for those who persecute you, to love those that, that live like they're your enemy because maybe they've done something you know, against you. Maybe somebody has taken your heart and you've given them their, your whole heart. They've taken your heart and they've crushed your heart. It's hard to love those and pray for those that have crushed your heart or maybe they've, they've taken you know, money from you or maybe it's an emotional thing. I don't know, but I know this, that, that Jesus has called us to this. And part of making an impact, I mean really making a difference as a believer, is that we learn to walk with others. That's what Jesus Christ teaches us. And, and part of that is, is giving to those that are in need. In fact, we go to Matthew chapter 6, and we see the whole dialogue is about giving to the needy and doing it in such a way we don't let the right hand know what the left hand is doing. This means, church, that we learn how to give um, according to God's economy, not according to the world's economy, because those are two different economies, right? I mean, in the world economy, we, we can value, we can see why we would give to a certain, you know, uh, business or a certain ministry or or because you know it makes sense in fact we justify the idea that this would be good stewardship and we want to be good stewards and so you know this is going to have the biggest bang for a buck or our money's going to go further if we give to this but sometimes and this might be meddling a little bit sometimes giving is is a call from god it's a calling and we give, and even though it may, may not make any sense at all, it may, it may not be the best stewardship decision, but if God is calling us to give to something or to someone or to some you know, ministry and God is calling us, it doesn't always have to make sense. Why? Because sometimes giving is a calling. And we're just being obedient to what God's voice and how the Holy Spirit is directing us. Remember, they were masters of discerning God's will through the voice of the Holy Spirit. And sometimes giving is just simply calling. And whether we're given our tithes or whether we're given to a ministry, we're wanting to listen to the voice of God as God calls us to give and to serve and to sacrifice. And that's what we see in this early church is, is that they were givers and they, they were sacrificial people. It makes a difference. How do you make a difference? I mean, heaven forbid, if this was the end, and this was the last day that we had to live, could somebody say that, that that person, yes, Tony, he, he was a giver and he gave sacrificially. I, uh, For fun, I got on the, the computer and I googled Mother Teresa. 
And you know how many pages came up, how many pages popped up before I just got tired of reading through them from Mother Teresa, how, you know, in regards to her life and, and the impact that she had. 13 pages of Google. And then I just got tired and stopped looking at them. 13 pages. You know how many pages popped up when I put my name in Google? Barely one page. I'm kind of ashamed of that. Just one page. But why has Mother Teresa had such an impact? Why and how did she make such a great difference? By giving her life to others. It's not profound. It's not hard to understand. Is that she, she was a server and she gave herself to others and it has had a profound impact. It's not a profound concept, but it has had a profound impact because she gave. And we think of Jesus Christ and we think of the very same thing, that he gave his life to others sacrificially. And so we say, well, how do we make a difference? Yeah, that early church, they walk with God. They walked with others. What is the last thing? The last idea is they, they walked where no one else was willing to walk. What that means is that we, we are willing to walk where God leads us, where God's voice takes us. That means that, yes, our life is that blank check and we're willing to be obedient to God and say, Father in heaven, I will go and I will do whatever you call me to do. Because I want to serve you, Lord. I want to glorify you. And I believe that God will honor that. Someone once said that the biggest risk is doing nothing. The biggest risk is just doing nothing. And, 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 and folks, I, I just I don't want to be guilty of that. I, I want to make sure that if something were to happen to me, that there would be evidence that would point to the fact that this man was a lover of a Savior, Jesus Christ. I'm wondering if there's going to be evidence of that in your life. I love, uh, I love what Jeremiah teaches us in another chapter, chapter 18. Um, there we read, The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah saying, Arise and go down to the potter's house. And of course, just like a great preacher, there's this, this analogy, this idea, the story of the impact of the potter and what he, what he does with the clay. I love the better story and illustration that uh, I read that was from a professor who was in seminary, Dallas Seminary, but he lived in Tennessee, and he and his buddies were driving back to seminary after a break from Tennessee to Dallas. And it was a pretty long drive, and so they were kind of being touristy and stopping at different places, and the professor wrote about stopping at this pottery factory, this pottery factory. And he said the parking lot you know, kind of pulled in towards the side of the factory, kind of towards the back, and as they got out of the car, they noticed there on the side there behind the factory was this hill, and it's obviously the place that they were getting their clay. And I mean, it was just a soppy mess. I mean, it was just a gooey, ugly, uh, discolored mess. And he says it was the messiest, ugliest side of a hill that he'd ever seen. It just looked, again, sloppy. And so they went inside and they took a tour and they were just enamored by, you know, how many dozens of of, of, of potters that were in there that were working with these electric wheels, not the old foot wheel, but they were electrically powered and the wheels were turning. They had a lump of clay and it was just, you know, just kind of remarkable watching them do their work. They were masters of what they did. And then, and then as they finished the tour of the factory, they ended up at the front of the store where there was a display of the items that had been made. And man, the deep colors and the beautiful casts and the, the, the shapes and just all the different items, they were just absolutely just beautiful. And he thought to himself, remembering the hill out back that was just a soppy, ugly mess. And now the pieces 
that are the result of the materials from out back that was there in the front of the store. And he thought to himself, he's writing this, he thought to himself what made the difference between that soppy mess in the back and those pieces of beautiful artwork in the front were the potters. It's the potters. That's such a simple idea that Jeremiah gives us. That he is the potter and that we're the clay and that God, as he moves in us, and by becoming masters of knowing God's will through the Holy Spirit and being involved in his word and responding to the Lord, God, our partner, will shape us and he will form us. And our lives will make a difference as we listen to him, who is our guide, our God, our Savior, and our director. God wants to make a beautiful piece of work out of your life. He wants to bless you. Let's do that. Let's say, Lord, we're here. We're an open check. Lord, do with us what you want to do, even in these difficult times, even when there is a pandemic afoot, that, Father, we want to glorify you, even as we learn to live this Christian life in this situation. Lord, we love you today. Thank you, Father, for hearing our voice. Thank you, God, for speaking to us through your word this morning. I pray that you'll be glorified as we are obedient to hearing your voice, spending time in your word. Lord, serving and walking with others. And I pray, Lord, that you'll be honored in that. We ask this in Jesus Christ's glorious name. Amen.